the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation, 60 minutes that could save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org, in partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. In the last episode of The Heart of Innovation, we had Dr. Kadidar on talking about uh, strokes and the prevalence of them, treatment options, et cetera, et cetera. And this week, we wanted to bring on someone that actually experienced a stroke and how he has actually recovered because it's always inspiring, you know, especially if you've had a stroke that you know what you can persevere and how you can persevere so i'm really excited about um, introducing everyone in just a few moments to a really good friend of mine dave kim who is an incredible musician and an executive in the technology world always on the cutting edge talking about the metaverse oh we're going to tell you what that is if you're not familiar with that you'll want to know and we have a little surprise launch in the end we're going to tell you about as well so get ready get things started this is going to be a really powerful show i think and a really inspiring story from dave kim john welcome hey how's it going happy um saturday uh well actually we're recording this but yeah so nonetheless (laughs) um you know as as you were mentioning that story i it reminded me of a patient who I see who had a stroke when she was 16, had a ruptured aneurysm. So she had a brain bleed at like she was in, I think she said she was eating lunch and she did not feel well. And then the next thing she knew, she woke up in a hospital and she has lost a function of her right arm and a lot of her right leg. But yet she perseveres like nobody's business and now she's 45 50 i think and going strong and just a testament to willpower so you got me thinking about that and then the other thing i was thinking about as i was listening to our mike's jingle you know there are certain like noises and then you associate something with it like so for example on my phone there's a the ringtone for our emergency department like whenever i hear that on someone else's phone i think the emergency department's calling me for a a heart attack or something and so it's like whenever i hear that little jingle not necessarily obviously with what Mike does, but you know, you'll hear it in the real world. I'm like, yeah, oh, it. it's time for our radio show. So, nonetheless, <laughs> I'm just, um, you know, free association here today. 
I, I love it. I love it. I'm right there with you on that. Um, so I, I think that it's been a really big week for me. I'm mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. trouble just staying focused today. And it, because I've been literally heads down over the past three weeks and I'm going, you know, on this one article that I was writing, it was in a sense, a clarification article. There were a couple articles that had come out in um, with the New York Times and another organization called ProPublica, where it was coming down on some of the doctors that are, um, you know, exhausting all efforts to save life and limb for people with peripheral artery disease. The, what we always talk about, those blocked arteries in the mainly the leg arteries and three and five people who suffer a heart attack have these blocked arteries in the legs as well. And it, the articles really frustrated me because I felt like there was so much misinformation out there or it wasn't really where we should be focused. Yes, there are there might be a few bad seeds out there that might be doing a few too many procedures or there might be a few people that are, are doing a few more experimentations than others. But that shouldn't really be the focus. The real focus should be the fact that there are more than 50 percent of amputations that are occurring because of this disease with no one even trying to save their legs. And that to me is the bigger story and the money behind those amputations versus the money that these other articles were talking about for that's going to those who are doing so many procedures to save someone's limb. So I put out this article today. It's on LinkedIn. Anyone who wants to read it can go on to my LinkedIn and and read it. It's really interesting um, because I compare peripheral artery disease and how it's treated and what patients are told to the treatment of cancer. In in peripheral artery disease, and especially its advanced stage, critical limb ischemia, it's deadlier than all cancers combined with the exception of lung cancer. And yet you would rarely have a doctor who is dealing with someone who's terminally ill say to that patient, you know what, we're not going to try everything in our power to save your life and give you even just one more day to spend with your kids. But yet they do that to these CLI patients. They say, well, this doctor is doing too many things to try and save your legs, so we want to put a stop to it. Every person should have the best chance that they can to save their life and their limb. And even if it just means another day with their leg, another day with their life, that's really the point that I try to make in this article. So it should be exciting. I know I, you can relate to it. No, I definitely can. And, and um, gosh, a lot of thoughts were kind of going through my head there. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. There's there's some some folks that overuse some of the equipment. We get that. And then some some folks that are driven, you know, from for money. Um, but that happens everywhere, not just in medicine. And, you know, some yeah. of the companies, too, you know, yeah, they they pay experts to speak for them and maybe they overpaid some. Who knows? But to your point, um, I had a patient this week that she had a, a, so what we call transmetatarsal amputation. So she lost um, all of her toes and the wound that they tried to, you know, the incision line that they tried to heal had dehissed or broke apart. And she's elderly. And one of my our nurses had said, looked at the wound and said, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, come on, man. Like, this is just cut the leg off. And and I mean, he, he, they weren't like pressuring me, but I'm like, 
no, you think about it. You lose your leg, and that, and this for this woman, her for her to lose her leg, that's tantamount to a death sentence. And and yes. I think I I know I can't say for 100 percent certainty, but the procedure that I'm going to do on the patient. I'm not going to kill them with it. Okay. And if I can help them, then I'm going to do it. And this lady, she's on her probably fourth procedure with me in a year or two. And believe you me, I don't want to do these, but I feel like we somewhat have an obligation to. And the last thing I'll say is you're spot on with, with that, with the cancer um, kind of assessment. I started telling my patients that if you have PAD, it's kind of worse than having cancer because, you know, we're not going to cure this thing. It's going to be with you your whole life. We will do whatever we can to help you. You need to help yourself, like get your blood sugars under control and stop smoking and all that stuff. But, you know, you you, you might as well have cancer here. And, and I think part of what you're trying to do and what we try to do is educate people like this disease is really serious and yeah. you need to nip it in the bud when you can. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say, I guess, is that there you're right. I mean, no one, not that I know of, and I'm not a, obviously an oncologist, but they will spend a lot of money trying to extend somebody's life. And so, you know, we're kind of doing the same thing. And and the environment that exists, the the playing field that we play in is different in the hospital and it is in these places that they mentioned in New York Times. And so that is a manifestation of what CMS created. So CMS needs to fix it. But uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to reading your article. Obviously, um, we need to get uh, get to Dave. I can't wait to hear his story because uh, it sounds like it's going to be pretty inspirational. Yeah. So speaking of inspiration. I think Dr. John Phillips, spectacular vascular moment of inspiration. So this week I was thinking about quotes on kind of teamwork, collaboration. Um, it, I, I think, are you going to the conference AMP in Chicago? Or I am. Okay, I am. So I'm really excited. I hear you're going to be there too. And you're doing the live case. We are. We're doing live cases on Thursday. And so that takes a lot of teamwork. I mean, we're trying to find the right patients and, and we have a lot of boxes to check. And, you know, I can't do it by myself. And I was just on a call before we got here and I got one after about coordinating things. And so I thought, let me find a nice quote about collaboration. And this is going to be my shortest quote, I think, because it's a it's a, a hoppy proverb. It's hoppy is H-O-P-I. Um, but it. I read it and I was like, oh, let me think about this one. So I'm going to have you, I'm going to read it and then, and then we'll stew on it. Maybe we talk about it later. But the quote is, one finger cannot lift a pebble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, producer Mike. Yes. <laughs> my sentiment is exactly. Actually, that makes sense. You, you and I was like, in, in my head, pebble. I was like, wait a second. I, you can't pick up a pebble with one yeah. finger. So. I love collaboration. We are excellent at collaborating, Kim, and with Mr. Mike as well. So uh, nonetheless, that's my quote, short and sweet. I love that. And as we go into Dave Kim's story, I think that that's um, going to be literally the story that you, you can't lift a pebble with just one finger. When you're dealing with someone who has a stroke, it takes an entire village to help not only diagnose, but then treat and then rehab and then ultimately long-term management. You know, you have a lot of different, um, you know, players in the game at the time to help someone live a longer, healthier life. Yeah. 
Dave, would you agree? Welcome. Thank you for having me, Kim. And I would agree. Yeah, it does take, it takes so many people to do that. Um, but I want to take an early break here because I want to start right in, in segment two, getting to your story because everyone is going to be incredibly inspired. So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. We'll be right back. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We are focusing this episode on strokes and One particular person's inspiring journey, Dave Kim, a really good friend of mine. We've been friends for a very long time. And I before we get into the stroke itself, I just want to paint the picture as to who is Dave Kim, because he's one of the most inspiring and most talented people I think I've ever met in in my life. And Dave, you know, we actually met, I think, through um, volunteer work with an organization called Hack Cancer, which was raising money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And you were on stage. And I never thought I'd like the violin. I love the violin because of you. Um, that's, that's great, Kim. I um, have had an interesting journey with the violin. Um, I grew up actually taking it back. I was born in Montana. I grew up in Reno, Nevada. And as a Korean American with very strict parents having to, I should say tiger parents, having to to practice at the studying at the age of 10, you know, four hours a day. Wow. Classical music and violin, it was part of my life. And I actually didn't really care much for it because it was something that was forced on onto me. But it wasn't until I moved to the Bay Area in 99 where I took what I learned and um, just started uh, doing different things um, that people weren't doing, like performing um, with different types of music and more popular music and um, things like that. So that kind of opened up my horizon um, out of the whole classical music um, space. But one of the things that made you unique, which I want to share, because I think John is going to be completely blown away, is you were saying that you had to go in and practice four hours a day. And you got around, you kind of skirted around that rule a little bit. And I think that how you were able to do that, and you didn't really 
practice all four hours. Um, that's actually what, what helped you to create your uniqueness in in today's world and what it really catapulted you into the limelight here. So it's, it, bring us back to that time when you didn't really want to practice. Sure. So I am a Gen Xer and, um, you know, my generation, uh, we found ways to, you know, uh, I don't know, cultivate our laziness <laughs> with, with all the technology we've built. So at the time for me, I was sitting in my room thinking to myself, I really don't want to practice four hours. I'm 10 years old and there's a lot of other things that I'd rather be doing with my time. And so uh, the best Christmas gift I, I got um, that year was a, a cassette recorder, which enabled me to record up to two hours. Um, and so I would record two hours of me practicing and then I would buy back two hours of my time. So it cut the time in half. As long as my parents heard music, they would not bother me. <laughs> Strict rule. They would not awesome. bother me. And I had a talk track to cover myself saying that, you know, what are you doing? You're not practicing. You're playing your Atari or whatever. I said, I would tell them like, I am, I'm actually practicing because I'm listening to what I'm playing. And it was true because when I re-listen to everything, I would make mental notes and say, okay, the intro needs to slow down. This part needs to speed up. The phrasing here sucked. The, you know, I, I wouldn't be making mental notes. And then, um, at a certain point I would re-record, re-record until it was perfect. And then fast forward to when I moved to the Bay area, I discovered loop technology where I can play something, record it, have it play back and then simultaneously add different layers onto that. And so I, I would add guitar, I would add piano, I'd add violin and sound like a whole one man band. And it changed my trajectory of my career. That's awesome. I mean, I, I think about my, I have a 14 year old son who I, I can't get him to practice football, like throwing, because maybe he's going to be a quarterback for like a half hour. And I thought four hours, that's crazy. But it also reminded me of that scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he kind of records that whole scenario where, you know, to, to fake out his parents. Like, oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. So kudos, Dave. That's awesome. <laughs> And so who are some of the real, the coolest people that you've, you've ever played for? I know that I know one of them because I helped facilitate that somewhat, but um, your career has been amazing when it comes to music. Yeah. You know, I, the first thing that happened to me was I started performing with a singer songwriter and this was in the early 2000s and um, one of the biggest shows that our biggest show that we we first biggest shows opening up for Hootie and the Blowfish and then later we opened up for Third Eye Blind, Marcy Playground, Everclear, Dishwalla, a lot of big 90s bands and that's what kind of put put you know our band on the, on the map and the then, name of your band um, it was just self-titled um, for the singer songwriter's name was Chris Klaus and okay. um we had a rock star bass player named Uriah Duffy. He was the longest uh, touring standing bass player for Whitesnake and is just 
extremely talented bassist and we had a prodigy drummer from Modesto and um, we would do a lot of actually do a lot of our shows out in Modesto so that that kind of blew us up and then we took our act um, into the clubs and we're working with uh, a, a DJ named DJ Solomon and um, eventually we started uh, doing live acts with it, just playing live over DJ music in dance clubs and started doing things with like DJ AM and Travis Barker. And then eventually I started, um, I pivoted to doing more weddings and corporate events because that's where um, the money is. And that's what landed me to, to perform. And a lot of nonprofits, a ton of nonprofits, I, I've done that. And so that's how I, I connected with Kim, which eventually connected me to perform uh, on Richard Branson's Private Island. And that was absolutely in, incredible. Sir Richard Branson, Virgin Brands, right? Um, he has a, an island over the British Virgin Islands, and we were working on this um, startup challenge, extreme the Extreme Tech Challenge, and we held the top 10 over at the world's largest consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, um, CES, and then the top three presented to Sir Richard Branson on his private island, and Dave opened up the show. That, that is fantastic. Now... Can we get over to this private island, Kim? <laughs> I know, right? That would be incredible. You know, I heard he, he owns some hospitals or something over there in the UK, so we might just have Let's to reach out to him and have a discussion about it. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we're going to get to the heart of Dave Kim's story, so you don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your Life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. 
Welcome back, everybody. Sorry, I was uh, daydreaming about going on Sir Richard Branson's island. Um, but anyway, we're back here, and um, we are talking with Dave Kim, uh, famous violinist and um, a gentleman who I evidently have suffered a stroke, right, Dave? And so tell us a little bit about what you were doing when you had it and, and, and what was going through your head and that whole the medical journey that you uh, you know been on since then. Sure. So I think what what happened leading up to the stroke was I I had a kind of a series of mini strokes and uh, I believe uh, TIAs and um, and I, I kind of pieced this all together because I was practicing my violin, getting ready to perform uh, for a music festival in the desert, a uh, big one. You may have heard of Burning Man. And um, I was, I was as I was practicing, I was filming, and because I, I film a lot of things for social media, and when I was practicing, all of a sudden my my right arm started to feel really heavy, and I couldn't hold my bow like I used to, like normally, and I it was just really weird. But then it, it came back, um, the the feeling, and I just thought, you know. It felt like, you know, when you sleep on your arm or something and it you get, becomes numb. It, it, that's just what it felt like. And it came back, so I didn't think anything of it. And then a, a little bit later, um, I was out on my back porch. I was living in Sausalito at the time. And all of a sudden, my right leg gave out. And I couldn't stand. And it scared um, the hell out of me. And so... I called my neighbor upstairs and I asked him if, because actually before that I called my my doctor friend, um, who told me I was telling him what was happening, and he said, you know, he he didn't didn't sound like I was having a stroke, but he told me to to take some aspirin and I didn't have any, so I called my neighbor and um, asked him for some, and then he he gave me some aspirin, and but then I said, you know what I actually I think I might have you take me to the emergency room and so and at this time he thought I was drunk because I was slurring okay and um, and I didn't realize I was slurring I just thought I was talking normal but but to him was slurring and so he took me to the hospital and um, the last time I was able to walk normally was from his car into the emergency room and, and when and when I admitted myself to the emergency room my blood pressure was 250 over 150 and they looked at me and they said you should be standing right now and so they admitted me and then um they couldn't give me the the tpa um, because my blood pressure was so high and so um the next day when i woke up i was completely paralyzed on the right side of my body so you You'd had like many symptoms of this before this event, but just they kind of felt like, you know, something's off, but not too far off. And yes, did you have high blood pressure? I did. So it was the perfect storm. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and uh, I was a social smoker. So that was a perfect recipe for that that to happen. How how old were you at the time? 42. 42. Wow. Okay. Um, And then... So did you have bleeding or was there like a clot that had formed? It was a clot, ischemic clot. Uh, I see. Okay. 
I see. Okay. So go ahead, Kim. No, so you were, you went into the hospital and so what did they do for you? It sounds like there was so much they couldn't do. What did they do or did they do anything to stop the progression? I mean, if you woke up and you were, your symptoms were even worse than they were when you went in, I'm a little confused and maybe John you can clarify just a little bit of of what he was mentioning that he couldn't have um the TPA which is that a drip a catheter delivery of some clot busters yeah so basically what they would do is in the emergency room at at that time what, what, what year was this uh this was 2016 16 so yeah probably they would have administered the medicine through the IV as soon as possible um but the concern is because his blood pressure was so high, that could convert that ischemic stroke. So there was lack of blood flow that was causing his symptoms from a clot or plaque or combination of the two. That clot busting medicine could then, because the blood pressure was so high, cause a, a hemorrhagic conversion, so a bleeding, which would be completely catastrophic and unreversible. Yeah. Now, I don't know if they could have considered going in with a catheter-based procedure and kind of looking at the anatomy and seeing if they could pull the clot out after they, you know, got the got the blood pressure under control. Uh, I would imagine they probably put you on some blood thinners, but not a true. Obviously, he didn't get a true thrombolytic. It's called so that the the blood thinners help prevent further clot from forming and to a less a very small degree can kind of break up the clot. But what he would have probably gotten had his blood pressure been okay would have been the TPA or the thrombolytic to break up the clot. And so did they end up going in and manually um, removing the clot or was it just as soon as your blood pressure came down, you woke up the next day and then they just administered um, the TPA at that point? They they did not administer it. The damage had been done. It was already too late. And, you know, there's I've had a lot of thoughts behind what had happened. And, and I I don't know if there's there could have been anything that could have happened. I I, I don't know if I went to the right facility um, because the, the hospital I went to is not a stroke known, well-known stroke facility. I should have gone to uh, the, into the city, um, but I just went to the nearest uh, emergency room I could go to and they couldn't even do any of the, the tests until the following day anyway. Um, yeah, in terms of the CAT scan, yeah, and all that stuff. So, you know. The biggest issue with, with TPA is there's a finite window that you can give it in. And so it's it, there's this notion of last known well, which is unfortunate. Again, you know, we're, we're Monday morning quarterbacking it here in hindsight's twenty twenty. But, you know, Dave, you were – you knew exactly when you were well, people had seen you when you were well, you got there. So you probably were in that window, um, had things maybe been different. The, the biggest problem that we see is patients, they go to bed and then they wake up and something has happened. And so the doctors don't know when this happened. And there has been a recent um, expansion of the indication timing for the medicine within the last few months or so. So that's a benefit for patients. But um yeah, and after you get a certain to a certain point, there's no benefit in giving it. And in fact, you can have that conversion if you give it to the bleeding type of stroke, which is, you know, potentially even more catastrophic and lethal. It. Go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, I think that was the biggest concern is because my, my blood pressure was so elevated. And, um, you know, for me, it was frustrating because I felt like I did everything, you know, to the book, you know, and according to this acronym that, that people use that, you know, it's, I'd be remiss to, to, to mention it and it's called FAST, um, you know, face, if your face is drooping, um, arm, if your arm is, is feeling heavy, speech um, is distorted and then time like if any of those things are happening you need to go to the hospital immediately and i i did all those things and i did everything right and i have such a allergic aversion to doctors in the hospital but i forced myself to go <laughs> i mean you, you you did all the right things though i mean yeah. that's unfortunate yeah and coming up right here on the heart of innovation we're going to find out about how Dave was able to recover and persevere, so you don't want to miss the rest of the story, so stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We're continuing our uh, story with Dave. Uh, so, Dave, again, unfortunate what happened, but you know, obviously, you're here with us. You persevered, uh, and and you're still making music. But so you were in the hospital probably for a couple of days, I would imagine. I, I was in the the ICU for a week. Okay, gotcha. And then um, was transported to uh, UC um, or um, Davies campus um, in the city. Was it a rehab center that you went to in the city or another hospital for further care? Yes, it was a rehab facility. And what was the team like for you? What were the doctors telling you while you were in the hospital in terms of the potential for your recovery and and getting full use of your limbs again. I mean, that's really important for someone who is in their 40s, all their life ahead of them, right? And especially someone who is on stage as a musician. Yeah, you know, what, what they tell everyone is that most of the recovery that happens, happens within a, a, the first, um, I don't know, a small window of um the first year you're going to have the most recovery and so what kind of happened with me is that when I was in the ICU I was really focused on my right thumb and I around the seventh day in the the ICU um I was able to get a little wiggle out of my right thumb because I was my arm was popped up on pillows and whenever I was awake I would just look at my thumb I don't nobody told me to do this or nobody I just was like commanding it to move and and on the seventh day it I got a little wiggle and it gave me so much hope and I don't know what what it was but I I figured out what it was going to take to get the rest of my body to move it was I can't explain it because when having a stroke and being paralyzed, there's no pain associated with it. And so I, you know, when you break your arm, you, you, that pain tells your brain that, okay, you broke your arm and you're going to have to do, you know, recover and things like that. There was no pain associated. It just, my right side of the body just shut off. And so I, I was just 
just really focus and, and think about moving my thumb and um, I was able to get that little wiggle and, and was just extremely focused on that and when that that happened um, I, I, I kind of felt like I knew what it was going to take to get the rest of my body to move. That's amazing. And so did you use that same mindset and, you know, pathway to start getting more feeling in the rest of your body? Was that really a key part of that strategy? Yes. So, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of um, support groups. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of doctors and what they would kind of concluded was that the fact that, you know, I'm a classically trained musician and my brain at, at such a, a young age was formatted um, and I I'd learned all about neuroplasticity and I didn't realize how much brain power it takes to play an instrument like the violin or any instrument and um, I had other neural pathways that my brain could carve out and, and communicate with my body I just had to remap those things and um, just a lot of things that I, I'm not a you know I don't have a medical history or background but I a lot of these things just made sense to me and, and and being a classically trained musician like I would play 15 page Mozart concertos note for note flawlessly and the amount of brain power it takes to do that on a violin um, with all the dexterity and, and everything is, is a lot and I, I just was learning about that and I, I approached my recovery and rehab as, as a way of learning a, a 15 page piece like measure by measure by measure by measure and just taking those little little um, wins little movements as okay as soon as I complete the first measure then I can move on to the second measure and and a lot of people in general don't have that kind of discipline when it comes to they just give up so easy because it's it was the hardest thing I've ever had to go through in my entire life and the way I can describe it the best way I can describe it it was like taking a grain of sand from a beach in San Francisco walking that grain of sand to a beach in New York and repeating that process until all the sand in San Francisco is in New York and if you're willing to do that then you can you can have a, a full recovery, but if not, then it's that tedious. Where did you, because I, I would imagine there were some, probably some dark holes that you fell into during this, this period, because your life was music and now potentially you couldn't move your arm or walk for that matter. So that, what, what was it that motivated you, the, the notion to play music again? Um, and my, my follow-up is, at what point did you thank your parents for making you practice four hours a day? Um, okay, so <laughs> the, the, the motivation here's 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 the motivation. I'm gonna let me just close my door. There's a, a loud. So, okay, man, you know, as as he's attending that, like this is an amazing story. I know that's why. I mean, to see, I was there in the hospital room with him. Yeah. And seeing him then and seeing him now, what, seven years later? Because he it's, just got up and walked away. No, you, yeah, you know, yeah, it, way, you can't see that. But he, look, I mean, sorry, go ahead. This, this is awesome. <clears throat> so I motivation was I had two two boys 
that um, were probably five and six. They're the joy of, of my life, and I, I was. They definitely motivated motivated me, inspired me to to work on my rehabilitation, but also. I literally, you know, I was just telling Kim earlier, like, she was so sweet. She's such a dear friend. She came in and and just made sure I was comfortable. She 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 bought me this pillow that I still use today, so that I was comfortable um, in the ICU. She also bought me this fan that was around my neck, because so, it was always warm and is, you know, dead of summer. But I literally had thousands of people reach out and hundreds of people that came to visit me and I was so humbled by that because I as a performer I've performed in literally over a thousand weddings probably in my my career and events all over the world and and when I perform at an event such as one you know many of the events that Kim and I were a part of with Hack Answer I would perform people would have fun um, maybe they'd come up to me and be like, hey, that was cool or whatever. But then I would have to pack up and go home and plan for the next event. So I never really got a lot of people's feedback. Um, but when this happened, people from all just everywhere reached out to me and told me how much my life and my music affected them, you know, by performing at their wedding and, and this and that. And I, I was just so moved by that. And I felt a, a responsibility to if I can come back, you know, so many people are counting on me to to in, in inspire them. So I, I that was a, a, a huge, the, probably the biggest motivation. Well, coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to find out what Dave is up to now. And hmm, is he fully recovered? He'll tell you next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Dave, as as we mentioned, we we saw you get up and walk. So are you fully recovered? Obviously, that's amazing. And you're nodding your head yes, so that's awesome. What are you up to now? Yeah, so, you know, I, I had a pretty fast recovery once I knew what I needed to do. And when I went to um, the, the the rehab facility in San Francisco, I basically had three weeks to, my, my goal was to learn how to walk again. And I came in in a wheelchair and I achieved that goal and I walked out of the, the hospital. And that was a big... Uh, win for me and then I just told myself I, I'm, I just need to go home and work on my recovery and I made my life so extremely difficult I didn't want anyone to help me or to do it because that's what they told me to do and and I uh, forced myself to because a lot of people you know really focus on the the limb that um, that works and they don't you know focus on their recovery so I, I did the opposite and, and just made my life difficult to to make sure that I focus on my recovery and I use my instruments to do that and um, I was able to just a couple years 2019 um, perform at live on the main stage with Michael Franti at the Bottle Rock Music Festival and that was my big comeback moment and I the there is a, a video of that um, on my website davekim.com and um, that was just a message to myself and to the world to, sh- to share that look you can have 
you know, anything like devastating things happen to you. I was literally coming back from a tour, uh, performing on Richard Branson's private island, Cuba, Ibiza, all over the world. And then I hit rock bottom and my whole world just fell apart. But then focused on my recovery, staying positive, finding a good support network and people that were there. And I just was achieving milestones, was able to walk one mile, two miles, three miles. And, and then and then after that, I was able to, my whole recovery at that point was focused on being able to play the violin again and doing movements and exercises so that I could hold my bow and, and have those movements uh, to, to, to play. It's, it's different. I don't play the same, but I can still play. And, um, you know, I have my life back. That's amazing. And you're also what's exciting is you're not only a musician, but you are a director of sales for literally a cutting edge technology company. And tell us just really quickly, we have about a minute left to talk about that. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a director of sales for a company called Provenance.co, and we have a metaverse uh, platform that is browser-based. So you can click on a, a, a link and it, it can will take you into an immersive world, which we are creating. Um, the, the whole part of this is, is for connection. And, you know, one of our CEO, my best friend, Will O'Brien, um, is the CEO of this company. And he was one of the dearest friends that came in to come see me and um, in the hospital. And he's supported me on my journey. And um, we have created this, this, this space on this platform where people can have a connection from all over the world. And that's really important when you're, you know, going through any type of um, challenges with your health is just to be connected and supported by like-minded people. And so we're doing this um, for, for for your organization as well. So Yeah. And so stay tuned on the waytomyheart.org. Very soon you're going to see a link to join our metaverse to support peripheral artery disease patients. Thank you so much, Dave Kim, for joining us. And congratulations oh. on persevering. You are definitely an inspiration. Awesome. Awesome, Dave. Nice meeting you. Fantastic. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.